Chapter Four, Part Two of Ten Days That Shook the World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Ten Days That Shook the World by John Reed. Chapter Four, Part Two: The Fall of the Provisional Government. More soldiers, Gajal Shack for the front delegates, announcing that they had only decided to leave the Congress by a small majority, and that the Bolshevik members had not even taken part in the vote, as they stood for division according to political parties and not groups. Hundreds of delegates from the front, he said, are being elected without the participation of the soldiers because the army committees are no longer the real representatives of the rank and file. Lukianov, crying that officers like Karash and Kinchuk could not represent the army in this Congress, but only the high command. The real inhabitants of the trenches want with all their hearts the transfer of power into the hands of the Soviets, and they expect very much from it. The tide was turning. Then came Abramovich, for the Bund, the organ of the Jewish Social Democrats, his eyes snapping behind thick glasses, trembling with rage. What is taking place now in Petrograd is a monstrous calamity. The Bund group joins with the declaration of the Mensheviki and socialist revolutionaries and will leave the Congress. He raised his voice and hand. Our duty to the Russian proletariat doesn't permit us to remain here and be responsible for these crimes. Because the firing on the Winter Palace doesn't cease, the Municipal Duma, together with the Mensheviki and Socialist Revolutionaries, and the Executive Committee of the Peasant Soviet, has decided to perish with the Provisional Government, and we are going with them. Unarmed, we will expose our breasts to the machine-guns of the terrorists. We invite all delegates to this Congress." The rest was lost in a storm of hoots, menaces, and curses, which rose to a hellish pitch as fifty delegates got up and pushed their way out. Kamenev jangled the bell, shouting, "'Keep your seats, and we'll go on with our business,' and Trotsky, standing up with a pale, cruel face, letting out his rich voice in cool contempt, "'All these so-called socialist compromisers, these frightened Mensheviki, socialist revolutionaries, bund, let them go. They are just so much refuse which will be swept into the garbage heap of history. Ryazanov, for the Bolsheviki, stated that at the request of the city Duma, the Military Revolutionary Committee had sent a delegation to offer negotiations to the Winter Palace. In this way we have done everything possible to avoid bloodshed. We hurried from the place, stopping for a moment at the room where the Military Revolutionary Committee worked at furious speed, engulfing and spitting out panting couriers, dispatching commissars armed with power of life and death to all the corners of the city, amid the buzz of the telephonographs. The door opened, a blast of stale air and cigarette smoke rushed out, we caught a glimpse of disheveled men bending over a map under the glare of a shaded electric light. Comrade Josephov Dukvinsky, a smiling youth with a mop of pale yellow hair, made out passes for us. When we came into the chill night, all the front of Smolny was one huge park of arriving and departing automobiles, above the sound of which could be heard the far-off slow beat of the cannon. A great motor truck stood there, shaking to the roar of its engine. Men were tossing bundles into it, and others receiving them, with guns beside them. "'Where are you going?' I shouted. 
"'Downtown, all over, everywhere,' answered a little workman, grinning, with a large exultant gesture. We showed our passes. "'Come along,' they invited. "'But they'll probably be shooting.' We climbed in. The clutch slid home with a raking jar, the great car jerked forward, we all toppled backward on top of those who were climbing in, past the huge fire by the gate, and then the fire by the outer gate, glowing red on the faces of the workmen with rifles who squatted around it, and went bumping at top speed down the Suvorovsky prospect, swaying from side to side. One man tore the wrapping from a bundle and began to hurl handfuls of papers into the air. We imitated him, plunging down through the dark street with a tail of white papers floating and eddying out behind. The late passerby stooped to pick them up. The patrols around bonfires on the corners ran out with uplifted arms to catch them. Sometimes armed men loomed up ahead crying, Stoy! and raising their guns, but our chauffeur only yelled something unintelligible, and we hurtled on. I picked up a copy of the paper, and under a fleeting street light read, to the citizens of Russia, the provisional government is deposed, the state power has passed into the hands of the organ of the Petrograd Soviet of Workers' and Soldiers' Deputies, the Military Revolutionary Committee, which stands at the head of the Petrograd proletariat and garrison. The cause for which the people were fighting, immediate proposal of a democratic peace, abolition of landlord property rights over the land, labor control over production, creation of a Soviet government, that cause is securely achieved. Long live the revolution of workmen, soldiers, and peasants. Military Revolutionary Committee, Petrograd Soviet of Workers' and Soldiers' Deputies. A slant-eyed, Mongolian-faced man who sat beside me, dressed in a goatskin Caucasian cape, snapped, Look out! Here the provocators always shoot from the windows. We turned into Znamensky Square, dark and almost deserted, careened around Trebetskoy's brutal statue, and swung down the wide Nevsky, three men standing up with rifles ready, peering at the windows. Behind us the street was alive with people running and stooping. We could no longer hear the cannon, and the nearer we drew to the winter palace end of the city, the quieter and more deserted were the streets. The city Duma was all brightly lighted. Beyond that we made out a dark mass of people, and a line of sailors, who yelled furiously at us to stop. The machine slowed down, and we climbed out. It was an astonishing scene. Just at the corner of the Ekaterina Canal, under an arc light, a cordon of armed sailors was drawn across the Nevsky, blocking the way to a crowd of people in column of fours. There were about three or four hundred of them, men in frock coats, well-dressed women, officers, all sorts and conditions of people. Among them we recognized many of the delegates from the Congress, leaders of the Mensheviki and Socialist Revolutionaries, Avskantev, the lean, red-bearded president of the Peasant Soviets, Sorokin, Kerensky's spokesman, Kinchuk Abramovich, and at the head white-bearded old Schreider, mayor of Petrograd, and Prokopovich, minister of supplies in the provisional government, arrested that morning and released. I caught sight of Malkin, reporter for the Russian Daily News. "'Going to die in the Winter Palace!' he shouted cheerfully. The procession stood still, but from the front of it came loud argument. Schreider and Prokopovich were bellowing at the big sailor who seemed in command. "'We demand to pass!' they cried. 
see these comrades come from the congress of soviets look at their tickets we are going to the winter palace the sailor was plainly puzzled he scratched his head with an enormous hand frowning i have orders from the committee not to let anybody go to the winter palace he grumbled but i will send a comrade to telephone to smolny we insist upon passing we are unarmed we will march on whether you permit us or not cried old schreider very much excited i have orders repeated the sailor sullenly shoot us if you want to we will pass forward came from all sides we are ready to die if you have the heart to fire on russians and comrades we bare our breasts to your guns no said the sailor looking stubborn i can't allow you to pass what will you do if we go forward will you shoot no i'm not going to shoot people who haven't any guns we won't shoot unarmed russian people we will go forward what can you do we will do something replied the sailor evidently at a loss we can't let you pass we will do something what will you do what will you do another sailor came up very much irritated we will spank you he cried energetically and if necessary we will shoot you too go home now and leave us in peace at this there was a great clamour of anger and resentment prokopovitch had mounted some sort of box and waving his umbrella he made a speech comrades and citizens he said force is being used against us we cannot have our innocent blood upon the hands of these ignorant men it is beneath our dignity to be shot down here in the street by switchmen what he meant by switchmen i never discovered let us return to the duma and discuss the best means of saving the country and the revolution whereupon in dignified silence the procession marched around and back up the nevsky always in column of fours and taking advantage of the diversion we slipped past the guards and set off in the direction of the winter palace here it was absolutely dark and nothing moved but pickets of soldiers and red guards grimly intent in front of the kazan cathedral a three-inch field gun lay in the middle of the street slewed sideways from the recoil of its last shot over the roofs soldiers were standing in every doorway talking in low tones and peering down toward the police bridge i heard one voice saying it is possible that we have done wrong at the corners patrols stopped all passers-by and the composition of these patrols was interesting for in command of the regular troops was invariably a red guard the shooting had ceased just as we came to the morskaya somebody was shouting the yunkers have sent word they want us to go and get them out voices began to give commands and in the thick gloom we made out a dark mass moving forward silent but for the shuffle of feet and the clinking of arms we fell in with the first ranks like a black river filling all the street without song or cheer we poured through the red arch where the man just ahead of me said in a low voice look out comrades don't trust them they will fire surely in the open we began to run stooping low and bunching together and jammed up suddenly behind the pedestal of the alexander column how many of you did they kill i asked i don't know about ten after a few minutes huddling there some hundreds of men the army seemed reassured and without any orders suddenly began again to flow forward 
By this time, in the light that streamed out of all the Winter Palace windows, I could see that the first two or three hundred men were red guards, with only a few scattered soldiers. Over the barricade of firewood we clambered, and leaping down inside gave a triumphant shout as we stumbled on a heap of rifles thrown down by the Yunkers who had stood there. On both sides of the main gateway the doors stood wide open, light streamed out, and from the huge pile came not the slightest sound. Carried along by the eager wave of men, we were swept into the right-hand entrance, opening into a great bare-vaulted room, the cellar of the east wing, from which issued a maze of corridors and staircases. A number of huge packing-cases stood about, and upon these the Red Guards and soldiers fell furiously, battering them open with the butts of their rifles, and pulling out carpets, curtains, linen, porcelain plates, glassware. One man went strutting around with a bronze clock perched on his shoulder. Another found a plume of ostrich feathers, which he stuck in his hat. The looting was just beginning when somebody cried, "'Comrades, don't touch anything, don't take anything. This is the property of the people.' Immediately twenty voices were crying, "'Stop, put everything back. Don't take anything, property of the people.' Many hands dragged the spoilers down. Damask and tapestry were snatched from the arms of those who had them. Two men took away the bronze clock. Roughly and hastily the things were crammed back in their cases, and self-appointed sentinels stood guard. It was all utterly spontaneous. Through corridors and up staircases the cry could be heard growing fainter and fainter in the distance, "'Revolutionary discipline! Property of the people!' We crossed back over to the left entrance, in the west wing. Their order was also being established. "'Clear the palace!' bawled a red guard, sticking his head through an inner door. "'Come, comrades, let's show that we're not thieves and bandits. Everybody out of the palace except the commissars, until we get sentries posted.' Two red guards, a soldier and an officer, stood with revolvers in their hands. Another soldier sat at a table behind them with pen and paper. Shouts of, All out! All out! were heard far and near within, and the army began to pour through the door, jostling, expostulating, arguing. As each man appeared he was seized by the self-appointed committee, who went through his pockets and looked under his coat. Everything that was not plainly his property was taken away, the man at the table noted it on his paper, and it was carried into a little room. The most amazing assortment of objects were thus confiscated. Statuettes, bottles of ink, bedspreads worked with the imperial monogram, candles, a small oil painting, desk blotters, gold-handled swords, cakes of soap, clothes of every description, blankets. One red guard carried three rifles, two of which he had taken away from Yunkers, another had four portfolios bulging with written documents. The culprits either sullenly surrendered or pleaded like children. All talking at once, the committee explained that stealing was not worthy of the people's champions. Often those who had been caught turned around and began to help go through the rest of the comrades. See Appendix 4, Section 3. Yunkers came out in bunches of three and four. The committee seized upon them with an excess of zeal, accompanying the search with remarks like, Ah, provocators, cornelovists, counter-revolutionists, murderers of the people! But there was no violence done, although the Yunkers were terrified. 
They, too, had their pockets full of small plunder. It was carefully noted down by the scribe and piled in the little room. The Yunkers were disarmed. "'Now, will you take up arms against the people any more?' demanded clamoring voices. "'No,' answered the Yunkers, one by one, whereupon they were allowed to go free. We asked if we might go inside. The committee was doubtful, but the big red guard answered firmly that it was forbidden. "'Who are you, anyway?' he asked. "'How do I know that you are not all Kerenskys?' There were five of us, two women. "'Pesholst, Torishji, way, comrades!' A soldier and a red guard appeared in the door, waving the crowd aside, and other guards with fixed bayonets. After them followed single file half a dozen men in civilian dress, the members of the provisional government. First came Kishkin, his face drawn and pale, then Rutenberg, looking sullenly at the floor. Tereschenko was next, glancing sharply around. He stared at us with cold fixity. They passed in silence. The victorious insurrectionists crowded to see, but there were only a few angry mutterings. It was only later that we learned how the people in the street wanted to lynch them, and shots were fired. But the sailors brought them safely to Peter Paul. In the meanwhile, unrebuked, we walked into the palace. There was still a great deal of coming and going, of exploring new-found apartments in the vast edifice, of searching for hidden garrisons of Yunkers which did not exist. We went upstairs and wandered through room after room. This part of the palace had been entered also by other detachments from the side of the Neva. The paintings, statues, tapestries, and rugs of the great state apartments were unharmed. In the offices, however, every desk and cabinet had been ransacked, the papers scattered over the floor, and in the living rooms beds had been stripped of their coverings and wardrobes wrenched open. The most highly prized loot was clothing, which the working people needed. In a room where furniture was stored, we came upon two soldiers ripping the elaborate Spanish leather upholstery from chairs. They explained it was to make boots with. The old palace servants in their blue and red and gold uniforms stood nervously about, from force of habit, repeating, "'You can't go in there, Barine, it is forbidden!' We penetrated at length to the gold and malachite chamber, with crimson brocade hangings, where the ministers had been in session all that day and night, and where the Schweizari had betrayed them to the Red Guards. The long table covered with green baize was just as they had left it, under arrest. Before each empty seat was pen and ink and paper. The papers were scribbled over with beginnings of plans of action, rough drafts of proclamations, and manifestos. Most of these were scratched out, as their futility became evident, and the rest of the sheet covered with absent-minded geometrical designs, as the writers sat despondently listening while minister after minister proposed chimerical schemes. I took one of these scribbled pages, in the handwriting of Konovalov, which read, The provisional government appeals to all classes to support the provisional government. At this time, it must be remembered, although the Winter Palace was surrounded, the government was in constant communication with the Front and with provincial Russia. The Bolsheviki had captured the Ministry of War early in the morning, but they did not know of the military telegraph office in the attic, nor of the private telephone line connecting it with the Winter Palace. 
in that attic a young officer sat all day pouring out over the country a flood of appeals and proclamations and when he heard that the palace had fallen put on his hat and walked calmly out of the building interested as we were for a considerable time we didn't notice a change in the attitude of the soldiers and red guards around us as we strolled from room to room a small group followed us until by the time we reached the great picture gallery where we had spent the afternoon with the yunkers about a hundred men surged in after us one giant of a soldier stood in our path his face dark with sullen suspicion graphic doodling by Konovalov, facsimile of the beginning of a proclamation written in pencil by a i Konovalov, minister of commerce and industry in the provisional government and then scratched out as the hopelessness of the situation became more and more evident the geometrical figure beneath was probably idly drawn while the ministers were waiting for the end, end note. who are you he growled what are you doing here the others massed slowly around staring and beginning to mutter provocatory i heard somebody say looters i produced our passes from the military revolutionary committee the soldier took them gingerly turned them upside down and looked at them without comprehension evidently he could not read he handed them back and spat on the floor bamagi papers said he with contempt the mass slowly began to close in like wild cattle around a cowpuncher on foot over their heads i caught sight of an officer looking helpless and shouted to him he made for us shouldering his way through i'm the commissar he said to me who are you what is it the others held back waiting i produced the papers you are foreigners he rapidly asked in french it is very dangerous then he turned to the mob holding up our documents comrades he cried these people are foreign comrades from america they have come here to be able to tell their countrymen about the bravery and the revolutionary discipline of the proletarian army. "'How do you know that?' replied the big soldier. "'I tell you, they are provocators. They say they come here to observe the revolutionary discipline of the proletarian army, but they have been wandering freely through the palace, and how do we know they haven't got their pockets full of loot?' no snarled the others pressing forward comrades comrades appealed the officer sweat standing out on his forehead i am commissar of the military revolutionary committee do you trust me well i tell you that these passes are signed with the same names that are signed to my pass he led us down through the palace and out through a door opening onto the neva quay before which stood the usual committee going through pockets you have narrowly escaped, he kept muttering, wiping his face. What happened to the women's battalion? we asked. Oh, the women, he laughed. They were all huddled up in a back room. We had a terrible time deciding what to do with them. Many were in hysterics and so on. So finally we marched them up to the Finland station and put them on a train for Levashovo, where they have a camp. See Appendix 4, Section 4. We came out into the cold, nervous night, murmurous with obscure armies on the move, electric with patrols. From across the river, where loomed the darker mass of Peter Paul, came a hoarse shout, 
Underfoot, the sidewalk was littered with broken stucco, from the cornice of the palace where two shells from the battleship Aurora had struck. That was the only damage done by the bombardment. It was now after three in the morning. On the Nevsky all the street lights were again shining, the cannon gone, and the only signs of war were red guards and soldiers squatting around fires. The city was quiet, probably never so quiet in its history. On that night not a single hold-up occurred, not a single robbery. But the city Duma building was all illuminated. We mounted to the galleried Alexander Hall, hung with its great, gold-framed, red-shrouded imperial portraits. About a hundred people were grouped around the platform, where Skobielev was speaking. He urged that the Committee of Public Safety be expanded, so as to unite all the anti-Bolshevik elements in one huge organization, to be called the Committee for Salvation of Country and Revolution. And as we looked on, the Committee for Salvation was formed. That committee which was to develop into the most powerful enemy of the Bolsheviki, appearing in the next week, sometimes under its own partisan name, and sometimes as the strictly nonpartisan Committee of Public Safety. Dan, Goetz, Evkesentiev were there, some of the insurgent Soviet delegates, members of the executive committee of the peasant Soviets, old Prokopovich, and even members of the Council of the Republic, among whom Vinaver and other cadets. Lieber cried that the Convention of Soviets was not a legal convention, that the old Tsayika was still in office, an appeal to the country was drafted. We hailed a cab. Where to? But when we said Smolny, the Izvotchchiks shook his head. Yet, said he, there are devils. It was only after weary wandering that we found a driver willing to take us, and he wanted thirty roubles and stopped two blocks away. The windows of Smolny were still ablaze, motors came and went, and around the still-leaping fires the sentries huddled close, eagerly asking everybody the latest news. The corridors were full of hurrying men, hollow-eyed and dirty. In some of the committee rooms people lay sleeping on the floor, their guns beside them. In spite of the seceding delegates, the hall of meetings was crowded with people, roaring like the sea. As we came in, Kamenev was reading the list of arrested ministers. The name of Teretschenko was greeted with thunderous applause, shouts of satisfaction, laughter. Rutenberg came in for less, and at the mention of Palchinsky, a storm of hoots, angry cries, cheers burst forth. It was announced that Chudnovsky had been appointed commissar of the Winter Palace. Now occurred a dramatic interruption. A big peasant, his bearded face convulsed with rage, mounted the platform and pounded with his fist on the presidium table. We, socialist revolutionaries, insist upon the immediate release of the socialist ministers arrested in the Winter Palace. Comrades, do you know that four comrades who risked their lives and their freedom, fighting against tyranny of the Tsar, have been flung into Peter Paul prison, the historical tomb of liberty? In the uproar he pounded and yelled. Another delegate climbed up beside him and pointed at the presidium. Are the representatives of the revolutionary masses going to sit quietly here, while the Okhrana of the Bolsheviki tortures their leaders? Trotsky was gesturing for silence. These comrades who are now caught plotting the crushing of the Soviets with the adventurer Kerensky, 
is there any reason to handle them with gloves after july sixteenth and eighteenth they didn't use much ceremony with us with a triumphant ring in his voice he cried now that the oberonsi and the faint-hearted have gone and the whole task of defending and saving the revolution rests on our shoulders it is particularly necessary to work 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 we have decided to die rather than give up followed him a commissar from sarskoi selo panting and covered with the mud of his ride the garrison of sarskoi selo is on guard at the gates of petrograd ready to defend the soviets and the military revolutionary committee wild cheers the cycle corps sent from the front has arrived at sarskoi and the soldiers are now with us they recognize the power of the soviets the necessity of immediate transfer of land to the peasants and industrial control to the workers the fifth battalion of cyclists stationed at sarskoi is ours then the delegate of the third cycle battalion in the midst of delirious enthusiasm he told how the cycle corps had been ordered three days before from the southwest front to the defense of petrograd they suspected however the meaning of the order and at the station of paradolsk were met by representatives of the fifth battalion from sarskoi a joint meeting was held and it was discovered that among the cyclists not a single man was found willing to shed the blood of his brothers or to support a government of bourgeois and landowners kapolinsky for the mensheviki internationalists proposed to elect a special committee to find a peaceful solution to the civil war there isn't any peaceful solution bellowed the crowd victory is the only solution the vote was overwhelmingly against and the mensheviki internationalists left the congress in a whirlwind of jocular insults there was no longer any panic fear kamenev from the platform shouted after them the mensheviki internationalists claimed emergency for the question of a peaceful solution but they always voted for suspension of the order of the day in favor of declarations of factions which wanted to leave the congress it is evident finished kamenev that the withdrawal of all these renegades was decided upon beforehand the assembly decided to ignore the withdrawal of the factions and proceed to the appeal of the workers soldiers and peasants of all russia to workers soldiers and peasants the second all-russian congress of soviets of workers and soldiers deputies has opened it represents the great majority of the soviets there are also a number of peasant deputies based upon the will of the great majority of the workers soldiers and peasants based upon the triumphant uprising of the petrograd workmen and soldiers the congress assumes the power the provisional government is deposed most of the members of the provisional government are already arrested the soviet authority will at once propose an immediate democratic peace to all nations and an immediate truce on all fronts it will assure the free transfer of landlord crown and monastery lands to the land committees defend the soldiers rights enforcing a complete democratization of the army establish workers control over production ensure the convocation of the constituent assembly at the proper date take means to supply bread to the cities and articles of first necessity to the villages and secure to all nationalities living in russia a real right to independent existence the congress resolves that all local power shall be transferred to the soviets of workers soldiers and peasants deputies 
which must enforce revolutionary order. The Congress calls upon the soldiers in the trenches to be watchful and steadfast. The Congress of Soviets is sure that the revolutionary army will know how to defend the revolution against all attacks of imperialism until the new government shall have brought about the conclusion of the democratic peace, which it will directly propose to all nations. The new government will take all necessary steps to secure everything needful to the revolutionary army by means of a determined policy of requisition and taxation of the propertied classes, and also to improve the situation of soldiers' families. The Kornilovitz, Kerensky, Kaladin, and others are endeavoring to lead troops against Petrograd. Several regiments, deceived by Kerensky, have sided with the insurgent people. Soldiers, make active resistance to the Kornilovitz, Kerensky. Be on guard. Railway men, stop all troop trains being sent by Kerensky against Petrograd. Soldiers, workers, clerical employees, the destiny of the revolution and democratic peace is in your hands. Long live the revolution. The All-Russian Congress of Soviets of Workers' and Soldiers' Deputies. Delegates from the Peasants' Soviets. It was exactly 5.17 a.m. when Krylenko, staggering with fatigue, climbed to the tribune with a telegram in his hand. Comrades, from the Northern Front! The Twelfth Army sends greetings to the Congress of Soviets, announcing the formation of a military revolutionary committee which has taken over the command of the Northern Front. Pandemonium, men weeping, embracing each other. General Chermasov has recognized the committee. Commissar of the Provisional Government, Voitinsky, has resigned. So, Lenin and the Petrograd workers had decided on insurrection, the Petrograd Soviet had overthrown the Provisional Government, and thrust the coup d'etat upon the Congress of Soviets. Now there was all great Russia to win, and then the world. Would Russia follow and rise? And the world, what of it? Would the people's answer and rise, a red world tide? Although it was six in the morning, night was yet heavy and chill. There was only a faint unearthly pallor stealing over the silent streets, dimming the watchfires, the shadow of a terrible dawn gray rising over Russia. End of chapter 4, part 2